Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Saturday, January the 8th, 2022. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the need to expand the permanent membership on the United Nations Security Council to include African states. Also, the United Nations has launched a new initiative to expand dialogue on reaching a political settlement in uh, Sudan, uh, where uh, the mass democratic movement has been involved in a protracted struggle against the military. The Ugandan government is being pressured to release an author uh, who has been critical of the president and his family. And uh, Danish authorities have released uh, piracy suspects in order to avoid prosecuting them in Europe. In the second hour, we look at the commemoration surrounding the 110th anniversary of the founding of the African National Congress of South Africa, the oldest liberation movement and political party on the continent. Finally, we examine some of the most pressing and burning issues taking place in Africa and throughout uh, the international community. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, with Cesaria Ivor uh, from Cape Verde. Let's listen in. Cá tem palavras, não flamo, 
Mami jam kre Bunzama Mami jam kre Bunzama Con todo forza di alma Cate in palabra
Essa vive dentro da iola, é só maciciosa, falta lição viola, já que é mar azul. Que já sabe na silêncio, nós festa três de maio. Aquel pobre que sabe brincar Mãe carinhosa, 
Voy mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa, Voy mãe carinhosa. Ó terra mãe, a emoção é do filho pródigo, que já volta cheio da ansiedade para o orcamento. Ó terra mãe, a emoção é do filho pródigo, que já volta cheio da ansiedade para o ternura. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. De sol cascontes, bem constantes, chama igual. Boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa. Boi mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa. Você está a dar um leite que é tão doce e morninho. Nota sentir boa ternura na nós pele morena. Nota sentir boa ternura. Danos per morena, é por isso que esse nosso amor é assim tão grande, que mesmo na distância nunca te esquecer. Mãe carinhosa, mãe mãe carinhosa, mãe carinhosa, mãe mãe carinhosa. Ó terra mãe, a emoção é do filho pródigo. Já volta cheio da ansiedade para o alcalino. Ó terra mãe, a emoção é do filho pródigo. Que já volta cheio da ansiedade para o ternura. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Mãe carinhosa, boi mãe carinhosa. Dor profundo 
tatui tam, tatui kumamon, entene vadigado, e dor di meu, dor di crescer, entene tormentado.
de Deus vista nascer Vou reconhecer-se amor Vida é um lar de incompreensão 
vou condenar minha relação Com que tiver mais remissão Está a ser uma lamentação Para que vive na escolhida Traz dia e a vida Considera a essência de vida Com gente a pensar a voz Tudo ali vou ficar de quase para que vive nessa corrida Traz dias que a vida Considera a essência de vida Com gente vai pensando a voz Tudo está levando e cada qual Vive um dia cada vez Dia de manhã pode ser talvez Tudo que acontece é pecador E está na mão de nós criadores Vou abandonar-me na solidão Vou condenar-me para frustração Quando que tiver mais remissão Está a ser uma lamentação Vive um dia de cada vez Dia de manhã pode ser talvez Tudo que acontece é pecador Está na morte aos criadores Vou abandonar-me na solidão Vou condenar-me para frustração Quando que tiver mais remissão Está a ser uma lamentação Para que vive nesse corrida Traz dia aqui a vida Considera a essência de vida Com gente vai pensando a voz Tudo está levando de carne de quase Para que vive nesse corrida
hoje é um conjunto de rival Na música se ouve igual Quem tem seu irmão traz nos Não cante mal na coração Hoje é um conjunto de rival Na música se ouve igual Não fazer nos conjuntos Mas não poder dar muito falar Quem tá ganha bem tá passa mal Canta mas quem tá ganha bom Tá ganha bem tá passa mal Canta mas quem tá ganha bom Entre outros não esquece Nunca pode admitir mais Paciência para quem se acredita Na mesca tem foco no chat Entre outros não esquece Nunca pode admitir mais Paciência para quem se acredita Na mesca tem foco no chat Não fazer nós conjuntos Para não poder dar muito falar Quem está ganhar bem está passando mal Canta mais quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta mais quem está ganhando Pode admitir mais, paciência para quem se critica, na mesca tem foco no chat, quem te hoje não esquece, nunca pode admitir mais, paciência para quem se critica, na mesca tem foco no chat, não fazer nós conjunto, para não poder dar muito falar, quem está ganhando bem está passando mal, canta mas quem está ganhando bom, quem está ganhando bem está passando mal, canta mas quem está ganhando bom, não fazer nós conjunto. Para não poder dar muito que falar Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Quem está ganhando bem está passando mal Canta, mas quem está ganhando bom Maria, 
cachorra pisperida, Juninha guarda botava os neiradores, enguenta a boca nela, Juninha estava viçosa, vou botar na mana pausa, vou grogui, vou violão, já é um prazer que botei na vida. Que adianta a chora cisperida, Juninha bate, botava os neiradores, enguenta a boca nela, Juninha estava viçosa, vou botar na mana pausa. Vou grogui, vou violão, já é um prazer que botei na vida. Vou grogui, vou violão, já é um prazer que botei na vida. Que adianta a chora cisperida, vou pensar a mocidade, casa acabar. Sossego já desgove no espírito, esbacana e pra quem entender. Até sobrinha dita a fazer frente. Vou grogui, vou violão, já é um prazer que botei na vida. Que adianta a chora cisperida, vou pensar a mocidade, casa acabar. Tu sei que já desgove no espírito Espacana é pra quem entender Até sua criança está a fazer frente Vou grogui, vou violão Já é um prazer que botei na vida Vou grogui, vou violão Já é um prazer que botei na vida Vou grogui, vou violão Já é um prazer que botei na vida Vou grogui, vou violão Já é um prazer que botei na vida Vou grogui, vou violão Já é um prazer que botei na vida
cada gota é um esperança, amor e paz na coração, se beleza, se natureza, se tornar um jardim de amor, nós tristeza se acabar, alegria se voltar, água se comer naquele ribeira. Para ir um crescer, um jardim de amor, ai, só um coelho Nós tristeza se acabar, alegria se voltar, água se correr naquele ribeira. Um paraíso, um crescer, um jardim de amor, ai, só um nós tristeza se acabar, alegria se voltar, água se correr naquele cena. Um paraíso, um cliché, um jardim de amor. Ai, com 
los cabuces Es país que no planta Na medidor y miseria En armonía de nos cultura De barla bien que sota bien Un fresca brisa de paz No pega nos violar, no se no serenata. Y na dulzura do mi menor, na quintura do sol mayor, no canta nos sentimientos que nos traga. Maravilha de natureza Que espaiot na meio de mar Tão unido nos corações Esse sentimento não tem na peito Esse pensamento que te mostrou Noche a florir es jardín No vega que es cantar Pa' cada flor que nace Es un café de esta crecer Ya no por mí Es más serena y cristalina Na pulsar de seis ondas Ta unida nos corazones que no fluir es más serena y cristalina que no pulsar de ese onda que unir nos Florir esse jardim 
na faça só, nós é campeão. 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 Na faça só. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is Saturday, uh, January the 8th, 2022. We are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. <clears throat> We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. We just heard the music and the voice of... Uh, Cesaria Evora uh, from the West African Island Nation of Cape Verde. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. And our lead story uh, is taken uh, from uh, the Ethiopian Herald. It is written by Karam Tadese. It deals uh, with the question of uh, whether or not uh, Africa uh, should have a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. The article says that African leaders have been calling for a permanent seat at the United Nations Security Council for many years. A number of leaders across the continent uh, told the organization that the exclusion of Africa from the permanent membership, quote, can no longer be justified, unquote. Despite the Security Council being uh, the primary actor regarding international peace and security, however, uh, to its absurdity, Issues and decisions that concern the continent have been addressed without proper African representation. Critics say 76 years ago, uh, after his birth, the United Nations is now mired uh, in the legacy of the past while it becomes ever more active in the matters taking place on the African continent. As uh, victorious allies in World War II, only the five permanent members uh, China, France, Russia, United Kingdom, and the United States today have uh, veto rights, although historically the complete and unconditional acceptance of the permanent membership and the veto power was forced into the organization regardless of the numerous countries who protested against the privilege of the five permanent members of the council. This is also considered as a traditional stumbling block uh, which enables anyone of the veto, who has veto power to block any resolution that is not merely procedural in nature. As a result, the veto is criticized fundamentally and unjustly uh, by a majority of states and is thought to be the main reason why the Security Council failed to respond adequately to the unspeakable humanitarian crisis such as the Rwanda genocide that took place in uh, 1994. Looking at the African continent's numerical significance alone, the call for the Security Council permanent seat holds water as the continent is home for about 1.3 billion people, whereas in 2021, nearly 70% Chapter 7 mandate resolutions of the United Nations Charter that determines the existence of a threat or a breach to the peace or an act of aggression, among others, were related uh, to uh, the African continent. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, around uh, the continent of Africa, of course, uh, the situation in Sudan 
is still highly tense. And, of course, uh, since uh, the coup on October the 25th, uh, on November 21st, there was a reinstatement of uh, the interim prime minister, uh, Abdallah Hamdak. Then, of course, he resigned uh, just recently. And, of course, uh, the democratic forces uh, that have operated in the country over the last three years are demanding immediate civilian rule. Now, uh, the head of the United Nations mission to support the transition in Sudan, known as UNITAMS, said earlier today uh, that the launch of a process to facilitate inclusive dialogue between the Sudanese stakeholders to end the political crisis that culminated in the coup d'etat in October. Mr. Balkas Perez, in consultation with Sudanese and international partners, is formally launching a UN-facilitated intra-Sudanese political process, said the mission in a statement released uh, earlier today. The process is aimed at supporting Sudanese stakeholders and agreeing on a way out of the current political crisis and agree on a sustainable path forward towards democracy and peace. The statement reads further. Sudan had rejected a trioka a UN proposal, uh, EU proposal to hold internationally facilitated dialogue to agree on the appointment of a civilian prime minister, timelines and processes for the other transitional tasks, including establishing the Legislative Council, judicial authorities, accountability, and election mechanisms. However, Deputy Head of the Sovereign Council, Mohammed Abdan Dalglo Hamati, and the Council member, Sham al-Din Kabashi confirmed uh, to Mali Fee, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, that they finally decided to accept the idea. Following what uh, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres discussed, uh, the holding of Sudanese-led uh, with the uh, head of the Sovereign Council, Abdel Fattah al-Bahan. Perthes uh, said that the process uh, will be inclusive with the participation of the political parties, civil society, organizations, uh, women's groups, and resistance committees and armed groups. Women have played a central role in the revolution and the transition. Their full, meaningful, and equal participation going forward will be critical, he underscored. However, no date has yet uh, to be announced. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In East Africa, Ugandan authorities uh, face, are facing growing pressure to free an author who has been in detention for 10 days, allegedly over his criticism of the president and his son. Novelist uh, Kakwenzi uh, Rukiwa Bashahi has been in custody uh, since December the 28th, accused of what the police have called offensive acts and violation of a law against the misuse of a computer. Rukiwa Shah Aja, uh, who writes uh, satirical fiction, has been detained twice before over his work highlighting the failures of the government of President Yoweri Museveni, Uganda's leader, since 1986. A magistrate uh, ordered uh, Ruki Raba Shaja unconditional release earlier this week, but Ugandan security officials have not complied uh, with the order. Defense Attorney Iran Giza uh, said that Ruki Raba Shah Aja looked visibly weak and could barely sit down in his bloodied clothes uh, when he was turned to his house on Monday for a search. Kiza told the Associated Press he believes uh, Ruki Rabah Shah Aja 
is in the hands of the Special Forces Command, an army unit that protects the first family. He said a series of Twitter posts uh, by Ruti Bashar Haja had apparently angered Museveni and his son, Lieutenant General Muhuozi Kayan Rugaba, uh, who commands Ugandan's uh, inf- infantry forces. In the tweets, uh, Ruti Bashar described Museveni as an election thief and uh, Kayan Rugaba as an overweight and intellectually bankrupt soldier who hopes to succeed his father as president. They keep moving him around, Kiza said, of the security forces. They have defied court orders to release him, of course, uh, with uh, impunity. And finally, uh, three suspected uh, pirates who were detained on a Danish military vessel after a fatal gunfight with the Danish Navy off West Africa have been released after the government decided it did not want to bring them to Denmark to face preliminary charges of attempted murder. We have no interest in getting the persons in question uh, to Denmark, uh, Justice Minister Nick Hakarop uh, said uh, on Thursday, adding there was a risk that they would not subsequently be deported. A fourth suspected pirate uh, who was injured during a gun battle with the Danish Army is already in Denmark receiving medical care and will continue to face charges, he said. Foreign citizens found guilty of crimes in Denmark are often deported after having served their time, but some fight to stay, while others cannot be extradited because Denmark may not have extradition agreements with their countries. The nationalities of the suspected pirates are not known. Heikerup uh, said he, quote, had quite exceptionally ordered the prosecution to notify three of the four suspected pirates that charges against them would be dropped. Uh, He said it was a very unusual case, adding they simply do not belong here, and that's why I think it's the right thing to do. Danish media said the men were put on a uh, dingy in international waters with enough fuel, water, and food to reach land. The fourth suspected pirate was flown to Denmark on January the 6th, where he will face a custody hearing and further prosecution against him uh, continues. He was first admitted to a hospital in Ghana during a court call in December. However, as it was not possible to leave him there or in the area, and because it was not justifiable to release him to sea for healthy and safety reasons, the government said it has been necessary to bring the persons to Denmark. The November 24th incident involved the Danish frigate HDMS Espern Snar, which was on an anti-piracy operation off West Africa. It engaged uh, in an exchange of fire with a vessel that was reported to have been approaching several commercial ships in the Gulf of Guinea off of the coast of the oil-rich Nigeria. It had first dispatched a Seahawk helicopter, which reported seeing men on the vessel with equipment connected to piracy, including ladders. Following the gun battle, the vessel sank. Four of the suspected pirates were killed, and one is missing, presumed drowned. The other four were taken aboard the Danish ship. Later, because the ship is considered Danish territory, a Copenhagen court ordered the four held in custody while authorities investigated the case. In Denmark, the preliminary charges are one step short of formal charges. The Gulf of Guinea is one of the world's most dangerous waterways with regular kidnappings. In 2019, the region accounted for more than 90% of global crew members 
abductions. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay up some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, all you have to do is uh, go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners. All you have to do is uh, copy and paste the links into emails and send those emails out to other potential listeners. The programs can be shared by copying and pasting links on blogs and websites as well as the links being shared on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. How do you live with a broken heart and only a memory? I said we parted and I know what's in store for me. Heard a little everything. That's what I'll have to do. Loving you, I'll be so upset, never will forget the love that I shared with you. Turn and walk away, what is there to say? Nothing more I can do. Hurt a little every day. Time can heal every wound. All the pain will go away. 
Welcome back. And um, that was the voice of Tony Holloway uh, with the tune entitled Hurt a Little Every Day. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios here in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in once again uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, of course, uh, just uh, today uh, represents uh, the 110th anniversary of uh, the founding of the African National Congress. And uh, today, in the Republic of South Africa, uh, there were uh, commemorations uh, surrounding uh, that uh, holiday. And, of course, uh, we are going to uh, bring you uh, some of the uh, highlights uh, of that the African National Congress uh, being uh, the oldest national liberation movement and, uh, of course, the uh, political party on the African continent uh, having been formed in uh, 1912. And, of course, uh, since that time period, uh, the organization has gone through many changes. Uh, it has, of course, uh, been involved in um, peaceful struggles, <clears throat> trade union struggles uh, as well, as uh, struggles involving uh, the armed uh, campaigns to bring about national liberation uh, of uh, the Republic of South Africa. Uh, of course, there was a democratic uh, breakthrough uh, in uh, the 1990s and 1994. And of course, uh, we are going to uh, highlight uh, some of those things. Um, and also uh, in South Africa, uh, there has been um, gatherings, uh, rallies, but those gatherings and rallies uh, were limited uh, in their scope uh, due to the ongoing uh, COVID uh, pandemic uh, taking place uh, inside the country. And um, the capacity at uh, the various uh, events and venues uh, did not exceed, uh, even the largest one did not exceed 2,000 people. And uh, people uh, were, of course, uh, advised uh, to uh, social distance, to wear a mask, and uh, to uh, be sure to be vaccinated uh, prior uh, to uh, coming uh, to uh, the venue. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this worldwide uh, radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Zikaway, and uh, today is Saturday, uh, January 8th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, which is uh, Saturday, January 8th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit, and uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition uh, of our program. And uh, right now, we're going to uh, listen uh, to a historic uh, speech uh, coming up um, later in the month. In fact, the week from Monday will be the federally recognized holiday of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, birthday. Uh, he, would be, he would have been 93 years old, born in 1929 on January the 15th. The holiday is uh, recognized uh, each year on the third Monday. And, uh, of course, we want to highlight uh, some of uh, Dr. King's uh, speeches uh, which uh, were delivered uh, over a period of uh, approximately 13, 14 years. Uh, this speech is from uh, February of 1967. It is entitled The Casualties of the Vietnam War. Mr. Storer, Mr. McWilliams, other distinguished platform guests, ladies and gentlemen. I need not pause to say how very delighted I am to be here this afternoon and to have the privilege of being a part of this very significant conference. And in the very beginning, I want to express my deep personal appreciation uh, to my friend Robert Vaughn for these very kind and gracious words of introduction. It's always good to be in California and to renew old friendships and fellowships, and I'm happy to share the platform with uh, friends that I've known all along. I see Jack Ken is here with us today, and he's been a great supporter of our work in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You know, he's a great fundraiser, and one day we were having, or one evening rather, we were having a fundraising meeting at the home of Bert Lancaster, and when he got to making the appeal, my associate Ralph Abernathy said, you sound like a good Baptist preacher. <laughs> So whenever he talks to you about money, you better hold your pocketbook very closely. <laughs> but we have to be here with all of these friends. And of course, whenever I come to California, particularly when I take the flight out of New York or Chicago, I'm always happy to get on the ground because the flight over the Rockies, you know, is usually very turbulent. And after a turbulent flight, I... I'm always happy to land. I don't want to give anybody here the impression that I don't have faith in God in the air. It's simply that I've had more experience with him on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let me say briefly how happy I am to be here under the auspices of Nation magazine. Through its journalistic integrity and its genuine liberalism, certainly this magazine has carved for itself an imperishable niche in the annals of uh, journalistic history in our nation. And I know those of us who are readers and subscribers of Nation magazine are deeply indebted to it for all that it has done to make the discussion of the vital issues of our day and our age a reality. I think we can all say I'm sure Nation would appreciate that applause you're about to give. <laughs> and certainly in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, that is no greater need than for sober thinking, healthy debate, creative dissent and enlightened discussion. And I think this is why this particular symposium is so important. And so this afternoon I would like to speak to you candidly and I hope forthrightly about our present involvement in Vietnam. And I have chosen as a subject from which to speak the casualties of the war in Vietnam. We are certainly all aware of the nightmarish physical casualties of this war. We see them in our living rooms and all of their tragic dimensions on television screens. And we read about them on our subway and bus rides in daily newspaper accounts. We see the rice fields of a small Asian country uh, being trampled at will and burned at whim. We see grief-stricken mothers with crying babies clutched tightly in their arms as they watched their little huts burst forth into flames. We see the fields and valleys of battle being painted with humankind's blood. We see the broken bodies left prostrate in countless fields. Most tragic of all is the casualty list among children. It is estimated that some one million Vietnamese children have been casualties of this brutal war, a war in which children are incinerated by napalm, in which Amer American soldiers die in mounting numbers, while other American soldiers, according to press accounts, in unrestrained uh, hatred, shoot the wounded enemy as they lie on the ground it is a war that mutilates the conscience. These casualties are enough to cause all men to rise up with righteous indignation and oppose the very nature of this evil war. 
But the physical casualties of the war in Vietnam are not alone the catastrophes. The casualties of principles and values are equally disastrous and injurious. If the casualties of principle are not healed, the phys physical casualties will continue to mount. One of the first casualties of the war in Vietnam was the charter of the United Nations in taking armed action against the Viet, uh, the Viet Cong and North Vietnam. The United States clearly violated the UN Charter, which provides in Chapter 1, Article 2, that all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. And in Chapter 7, it states that the Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression and shall make recommendations or shall decide what measures shall be taken to maintain or restore international peace and security. It is very obvious that our government blatantly violated its obligation under the Charter of the UN to submit to the Security Council its charge of aggression against North Vietnam. Instead, we unilaterally launched an all-out war on Asian soil. In the process, we have undermined the purpose of the UN and caused its effectiveness at many points to atrophy. We have also placed our nation in the position of being morally and politically isolated. Even the long-standing allies of America have adamantly refused to join our government in this ugly war. As Americans and lovers of democracy, we should carefully ponder the consequence of our nation's declining moral status in the world. The second casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of self-determination. By entering a war that is little more than a domestic civil war, America has ended up supporting a new form of colonialism covered up by certain niceties of complexity. Whether we realize it or not, our participation in the war in Vietnam is an ominous expression of our lack of sympathy for the oppressed, our paranoid anti-communism, our failure to feel the ache and anguish of the have-nots, it reveals our willingness to continue participation in neo-colonialist adventures. A brief look at the background and history of this war reveals with brutal clarity the ugliness of our policy. The Vietnamese people proclaimed their own independence in 1945 after the combined French and Japanese occupation and before the communist revolution in China. They were led by the now well-known Ho Chi Minh. Even though they quoted the American Declaration of Independence in their own document of freedom, we refused to recognize them. 
Instead, we decided to support France in its reconquest of her former colony. President Truman felt then that the Vietnamese people were not ready for independence. And we again fell victim to the deadly Western arrogance that has poisoned the international atmosphere for so long. With that tragic decision, we rejected a revolutionary government seeking self-determination and a government that had been established not by China, for whom the Vietnamese people have no great love, but by clearly indigenous forces that included some communists. For nine years following 1945, we denied the people of Vietnam the right of independence. For nine years, we vigorously supported the French in their abortive effort to recolonize Vietnam. Before the end of the war, we were meeting 80% of the French war costs. Even before the French were defeated at Dien Bien Phu, they began to despair of their reckless action. But we did not. We encouraged them with our huge financial and military supplies to continue the war even after they had lost the will. During this period, United States governmental officials began to brainwash the American public. John Foster Dulles assiduously sought to prove that Indochina was essential to our security against the Chinese communist peril. When a negotiated settlement of the war was reached in 1954 through the Geneva Accord, it was done against our will. After doing all that we could to sabotage the planning for the Geneva Accord, we finally refused to sign it. Soon after this, we helped install Premier Diem. We supported him in his betrayal of the Geneva Accord accord and his refusal to have the promised 1956 election. We watched with approval as he engaged in ruthless and bloody persecution of all opposition forces. When Diem's infamous actions finally led to the formation of the National Liberation Front, the American public was duped into believing that the civil rebellion was being waged by puppets from Hanoi. As Douglas Pike wrote, and hard Americans helplessly watched Diem tear apart the fabric of Vietnamese society more effectively than the communists had ever been able to do, it was the most efficient act of his entire career. Since Diem's death, we have actively supported another dozen military dictatorships, all in the name of fighting for freedom. When it became evident that these regimes could not defeat the Viet Cong, we began steadily to increase our forces, calling them military advisors rather than soldiers. Today, we are fighting an all-out war, undeclared by Congress. We have well over 300,000 American servicemen fighting in that benighted and unhappy country. American planes are bombing the territory of another country. And we are committing atrocities equal to any perpetrated by the Viet Cong. 
This is the third largest war in American history. All of this reveals that we are in an untenable position, morally and politically. We are left standing before the world glutted by our own barbarity. We are engaged in a war that seeks to turn the clock of history back and perpetuate white colonialism. And the greatest irony and tragedy of it all is that our nation, which initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world, is now cast in the mold of being an arch-anti-revolutionary. A third casualty of the war in Vietnam is the Great Society. This confused war has played havoc with our domestic destinies. Despite feeble protestations to the contrary, the promises of the Great Society have been shot down on the battlefields of Vietnam. The pursuit of this widened war has narrowed domestic welfare programs, making the poor white and Negro bear the heaviest burdens both at the front and at home. And while the anti-poverty program is cautiously initiated, zealously supervised and evaluated for immediate results, billions are liberal, liberally expended for this ill-considered war. The recently revealed misestimate of the war budget amounts to $10 billion for a single year. This error alone is more than five times the amount committed to anti-poverty programs. The security we profess to seek in foreign adventures, we will lose in our decaying cities. The bombs in Vietnam explode at home. They destroy the hopes and possibilities for a decent America. If we reversed investments and gave the armed forces the anti-poverty budget, the generals could be forgiven if they walked off the battlefield in disgust. Poverty, <laughs> poverty urban problems, and social progress generally are ignored when the guns of war become a national obsession, when it is not our security that is at stake, but questionable and vague commitments to reactionary regimes. Values disintegrate into foolish and adolescent slogans. It is estimated that we spend $322,000 for each enemy we kill while we spend in the so-called war on poverty in America only about $53 for each person classified as poor. We have escalated the war in Vietnam and de-escalated the skirmish against poverty. It challenges the imagination to contemplate what lives we could transform if we were to cease killing. At this moment in history, it is irrefutable that our world prestige is pathetically frail. Our war policy excites pronounced contempt and aversion virtually everywhere, even when some national governments, for reasons of economic and diplomatic interest, do not condemn us. Their people, in surprising measure, 
have made clear they do not share the official policy. We are isolated in our false values in a world demanding social and economic justice. We must undergo a vigorous reordering of our national priorities. A fourth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the humility of our nation. Through rugged determination, scientific and technological progress and dazzling achievements, America has become the richest and most powerful nation in the world. We have built machines that think and instruments that peer into the unfathomable ranges of interstellar space. We have built gargantuan bridges to span the seas and gigantic buildings to kiss the skies. Through our airplanes and spaceships, we have dwarfed distance and placed time in chains. And through our submarines, we have penetrated oceanic depths. This year, our national gross product will reach the astounding figure of $780 billion. All of this is a staggering picture of our great power. But honesty impels me to admit that our power has often made us arrogant as a nation, we feel that our money can do anything. We arrogantly feel that we have everything to teach other nations and nothing to learn from them. We often arrogantly feel that we have some divine messianic mission to police the whole world. We are arrogant in not allowing young nations to go through the same growing pains, turbulence, and revolution that characterized our history. We are arrogant in our contention that we have some sacred mission to protect people from totalitarian rule, while we make little use of our power to end the evils of South Africa and Rhodesia, and while we in fact support dictatorships with guns and money under the guise of fighting communism. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for war in Vietnam. And these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against a fair housing bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. We arm Negro soldiers to kill on foreign battlefields but offer little protection for their relatives from beatings and killings in our own South. We are willing to make the Negro 100% of a citizen in warfare, but reduce him to 50% of a citizen on American soil. Of all the good things in life, the Negro has approximately one-half those of whites. Of the bad, he has twice that of whites. And thus half of all Negroes live in substandard housing, and he has half the income of whites. When we turn to the negative experiences of life, the Negro has a double share. There are twice as many unemployed. The rate of infant mortality among Negroes is double that of whites. There were twice as many Negroes in combat in Vietnam at the beginning of 1967, and twice as many died in action in proportion to their numbers in the population as whites. 
All of this reveals that our nation has not yet used its vast resources of power to end the long night of poverty, racism, and man's inhumanity to man. Enlarged power means enlarged peril. If that is not concomitant growth of the soul, genuine power is the right use of strength. If our nation's strength is not used responsibly and with restraint, it will be following Lord Acton's dictum, power that tends to corrupt, and power that corrupts an absolute power that corrupts absolutely. Our arrogance can be our doom. It can bring the curtains down on our national drama. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. And we are challenged in these turbulent days to use our power to speed up the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A fifth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the principle of dissent. An ugly, repressive sentiment to silence peace seekers depicts advocates of immediate negotiation under terms of the Geneva Agreement and persons who call for the cessation of bombings in the North as quasi-traitors, fools or venal enemies of our soldiers and institutions. Free speech and the privilege of dissent and discussion are rights being shot down by bombers in Vietnam. When those who stand for peace are so vilified, it is time to consider where we are going and whether free speech has not become one of the major casualties of the war. Curtailment of free speech is rationalized on grounds that a more compelling American tradition forbids criticism of the government when the nation is at war. More than a century ago, when we were in a declared state of war with Mexico, a first-term congressman by the name of Abraham Lincoln stood in the halls of Congress and fearlessly denounced that war. Congressman Abraham Lincoln of Illinois had not heard of this tradition, or he was not inclined to respect it. Nor had Thoreau and Emerson and many other philosophers who shaped our democratic principles. Nothing can be more destructive of our fundamental democratic traditions than the vicious effort to silence dissenters. A sixth casualty of the war in Vietnam is the prospects of mankind's survival. This war has created the climate for greater armament and further expansion of destructive nuclear power. One of the most persistent ambiguities that we face is that everybody talks about peace as a goal. However, it does not take sharpest-eyed sophistication to discern that while everybody talks about peace, peace has become practically nobody's business among the power-wielders. Call the role of those who sing the glad tidings of peace, and one's ears will be surprised by the responding sound. The heads of all of the nations issue clarion calls for peace. Yet these destiny determiners come accompanied by a band and a brigade of national choristers, 
each bearing unsheathed swords rather than olive branches. The stages of history are replete with the chants and choruses of the conquerors of old who came killing in pursuit of peace. Alexander Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Charlemagne, and Napoleon were akin in their seeking a peaceful world, a world fashioned after their selfish conceptions of an ideal existence. Each sought a world at peace which would personify their egotistic dreams. Even within the lifespan of most of us, another megalomaniac strode across the stage of history. He sent his troops blazing across Europe, bringing havoc and holocaust in his wake. That is grave irony in the fact that Hitler could come forth following the nakedly aggressive expansionist theories he revealed in Mein Kampf and do it all in the name of peace. So when I see in this day the leaders of nations similarly talking peace while preparing for war, I take frightful pause. When I see our country today intervening in what is basically a civil war, destroying hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese children and adults with napalm, and sending home half-men mutilated mentally and physically. When I see the recalcitrant unwillingness of our government to create the atmosphere for a negotiated settlement of this awful conflict by halting bombings in the North and agreeing to talk with the Viet Cong, and all this in the name of pursuing the goal of peace, I tremble for our world. I do so not only from dire recall of the nightmares wreaked in the wars of yesterday, but also from dreadful realization of today's possible nuclear destructiveness and tomorrow's even more damnable prospects. The past is prophetic in that it asserts loudly that wars are poor chisels for carving out peaceful tomorrows. One day we must come to see that peace is not merely the distant goal that we seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. How much longer must we play? <laughs> How much longer must we play at deadly war games? before we heed the plaintive pleas of the unnumbered dead and maimed of past wars. Why can't we at long last grow up and take off our blindfolds, chart new courses, put our hands to the rudder and set sail for the distant destination, the port city of peace? President John F. Kennedy said on one occasion, mankind must put an end to war. A war will put an end to mankind. How true this is, wisdom born of experience should tell us that war is obsolete. There may have been a time when war served as a negative good by pre preventing the spread and growth of an evil force, but the destructive power of modern weapons eliminates even the possibility that war may serve as a negative good. If we assume that life is worth living, and that man has a right to survive, then we must find an alternative to war. 
In a day when vehicles hurtled throughout a space and guided ballistic missiles carve highways of death through the stratosphere, no nation can claim victory in war. A so-called limited war will leave little more than a calamitous legacy of human suffering, political turmoil, and spiritual disillusionment. A world war, God forbid, will leave only smoldering ashes as a mute testimony of a human race whose folly led inexorably to ultimate death. So if modern man continues to flirt unhesitatingly with war, he will transform his earthly habitat into an inferno such as even the mind of Dante could not imagine. I do not wish to minimize the complexity of the problems that need to be faced in achieving disarmament and peace, but I think it is a fact that we shall not have the will, the courage, and the insight to deal with such matters unless in this field we are prepared to undergo a spiritual and a mental reevaluation, a change of focus, which will enable us to see that the things which seem most real and powerful are indeed now unreal and have come under the sentence of death. We need to make a supreme effort to generate the readiness, indeed the eagerness, to enter into the new world which is now possible. We will not build a peaceful world by following a negative path. It is not enough to say we must not wage war. It is necessary to love peace and sacrifice for it. We must concentrate not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but on the positive affirmation of peace. That is a fascinating little story that is preserved for us in Greek literature about Ulysses and the sirens. The sirens had the ability to sing so sweetly that sailors could not resist steering toward their island. Many ships were lured upon the rocks, and men forgot home, duty, and honor as they flung themselves into the sea to be embraced by the arms that drew them down to death. Ulysses, determined not to be lured by the sirens, first decided to tie himself tightly to the mast of his boat, and his crew stuffed their ears with wax. But finally he and his crew learned a better way to save themselves. They took on board the beautiful singer Orpheus, whose melodies were sweeter than the music of the sirens. When Orpheus sang, who bothered to listen to the sirens? So we must fix our vision not merely on the negative expulsion of war, but upon the positive affirmation of peace. We must see that peace represents a sweeter music, a cosmic melody that is far superior to the discords of war. Somehow we must transform the dynamics of the world power struggle from the negative nuclear arms race, which no one can win, to a positive contest to harness man's creative genius for the purpose of making peace and prosperity a reality for all of the nations of the world. In short, we must shift from the arms race into a peace race if we have the will and determination to mount such a peace offensive. We will unlock hitherto tightly sealed doors of hope and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. Let me say finally that I oppose the war in Vietnam 
because I love America. I speak out against it not in anger, but with anxiety and sorrow in my heart, and above all with a passionate desire to see our beloved country stand as the moral example of the world. I speak out against this war because I am disappointed with America. There can be no great disappointment where there is not great love. I'm disappointed with our failure to deal positively and forthrightly with the triple evils of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism. We are presently moving down a dead-end road that can lead to national disaster. Jesus once told a parable of a young man who left home and wandered into a far country when adventure after adventure and sensation after sensation he sought life, but he never found it. He found only frustration and bewilderment. The further he moved from his father's house, the closer he came to the house of despair. The more he did what he liked, the less he liked what he did. After the boy had wasted all the famine developed in the land, and he ended up seeking food in a pig's trough. But the story does not end there. It goes on to say that in this state of disillusionment, blinding frustration and homesickness, the boy came to himself and said, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. The prodigal son was not himself when he left the father's house or when he dreamed that pleasure was the end of life. Only when he made up his mind to go home and be a son again did he really come to himself. The parable ends with the, the boy returning home to find the loving father waiting with outstretched arms and a heart filled with unutterable joy. This is an analogy of what America confronts today. Like all human analogies, it is imperfect, but it does suggest some parallels worth considering. America has strayed to the far country of racism and militarism. The home that all too many Americans left was solidly structured idealistically. Its pillars were soundly grounded in the insights of our Judeo-Christian heritage. All men are made in the image of God. All men are brothers. All men are created equal. Every man is an heir to a legacy of dignity and worth. Every man has rights that are neither conferred nor, nor derived from the state. They are God-given. Out of one blood, God made all men to dwell upon the face of the earth. What a marvelous foundation for any home. What a glorious and healthy place to inhabit. But America strayed away. And this unnatural excursion has brought only confusion and bewilderment. It has left hearts aching with guilt and minds distorted with irrationality. It has driven wisdom from her sacred throne. And this long and callous sojourn in the far country of racism and militarism has brought a moral and spiritual famine to the nation. It is time for all people of conscience to call upon America to return to her true home of brotherhood and peaceful pursuits. We cannot remain silent. 
as our nation engages in one of history's most cruel and senseless wars, America must continue to have, during these days of human travail, a company of creative dissenters. We need them because the thunder of their fearless voices will be the only sound stronger than the blast of bombs and the clamor of war hysteria. Those of us who love peace must organize effectively as the war hawks. As they spread the propaganda of war, we must spread the propaganda of peace. We must combine the fervor of the civil rights movement with the peace movement. We must demonstrate, teach, and preach until the very foundations of our nation are shaken. We must work unceasingly to lift this nation that we love to a higher destiny, to a new plateau of compassion, to, more, no, to a more noble expression of humaneness. I have tried to be honest today. To be honest is to confront the truth. To be honest is to realize that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience and moments of comfort, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. However unpleasant and inconvenient the truth may be, I believe we must expose and face it if we are to achieve a better quality of American life. Just the other day, the distinguished American historian Henry Steele Cominger told the Senate committee, and I quote, Justice Holmes used to say that the first lesson a judge had to learn was that he was not God. We do tend, perhaps more than other nations, to transfer our wars into crusades. Our current involvement in Vietnam is cast increasingly into a moral mold it is my feeling that we do not have the resources, material, intellectual, or moral, to be at once an American power, a European power, and an Asian power. I agree with Mr. Cominger, and I would suggest that that is another kind of power that America can and should be. It is a moral power, a power harnessed to the service of peace and human beings, not in inhuman power and least against defenseless people. All of the world knows that America is a great military power. We need not be diligent in seeking to prove it. We must now show the world our moral power. That is an element of urgency in our redirecting American power. We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. There's such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain at flood. It ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant in every plea. It rushes on over the bleached bones and cluttered, cluttered wreckage of numerous civilizations are written the pathetic words too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect 
the moving finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. History will record the choice we make. It is still not too late to make the proper choice. If we to de decide to become a moral power, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of this world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. If we make the wise decision, we will be able to transform our pending national and cosmic elegy into a creative psalm of peace. This will be a glorious day. If we will only do it, we will speed up the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, Easterners and Westerners, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Welcome back, and that was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking in California uh, at a fundraising event uh, for the Nation magazine in February of 1967. Uh, that uh, speech was entitled uh, Casualties of the Vietnam War. It was delivered two months uh, prior uh, to the Riverside Church speech of April 4th, uh, 1967. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, coming up, um, in, on uh, January 17th in the United States, it is the federally recognized holiday in honor of the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Here in the city of Detroit, where we're broadcasting from, uh, we will be hosting the 19th annual uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Uh, rally. It will be a virtual gathering uh, due to the uh, escalation in the uh, pandemic, um, as was last year. And... Um, the uh, Detroit MLK Day uh, Committee is hosting uh, this event. Uh, they have a Facebook page and uh, a website as well at mlkdetroit.org, and uh, you can go on that site to find out more information about participating in the 19th Annual uh, Martin Luther King Day uh, Rally uh, on January 17th, beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in the United States. Right now we want to move... Uh, to discuss uh, once again uh, the 110th anniversary of the founding of the African National Congress in South Africa. And uh, that anniversary is today. We're going to listen to an interview uh, with uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of the African National Congress and the president of the Republic of South Africa. Let's listen in. President Cyril Ramaphosa has downplayed talks about him running for a second term, but he admits there are many challenges facing his party. One of those is party structures, which he says are in a dismal state. Ramaphosa was speaking to ENCA's host of Power to Truth, JJ Tabane, after the January 8th celebrations. Good afternoon, wonderful to be in your presence, particularly on the 110th birthday of the ANC, and thank you for joining us to celebrate this occasion. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that, I mean, the message, I mean, you, you added one more theme, uh, one more priority this year, if you look at last year's priorities, right? Why do you think it's going to be different? I mean, let's take, for example, one of the priorities on COVID-19, you know? The, 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 the only thing that mattered this past year, or this last year, was the vaccination, which are now at 
under 35 percent and your target was 70. Why would it be different? You put it back into uh, the, the discussions this afternoon. Why would the renewal project be different? You can just tackle those two quickly for me to, to just get a sense of whether this is not just more of the same. Well, it's not more of the same. Sometimes as a political movement, you, you've got to be harping on the same issues because mm. you are a big movement of more than a million members, so mm. you've got to bring everyone uh, into the crawl and uh, yeah. mobilize and conscientize people. So it's yeah. important for us to stay on message. Yes. And our renewal message is an important one because it is a clear mandate we were given by our 54th conference and uh, we've gone to, through a number of iterations, sometimes backwards movement and uh, mostly forward movement. So it is gaining traction. So the re repeating it yeah. is to ensure that it gains even greater traction, yeah. and particularly in the light of our election results, yeah. because those results kind of shook everybody into yeah. back into being awake. Yeah. Uh, so we need to reiterate and tell our members why we need renewal because yeah. our bad performance was as a result of our lack of adding momentum to the renewal yeah. process. But what are you going to do differently to make sure that those don't just become slogans? People are saying, well, ANC has been saying a better life for all for, uh, forever in a day and part of the trouble is implementation, right? What are you going to do differently drawing from this January 8th statement that would give people a little bit more confidence that this now things are going to happen? Well, we are already doing a number of things differently. And renewal, much mm. as it took quite a bit of time since uh, 2017 to gain traction, mm. has gained traction now. Everyone now accepts that this is the only game in town, if I can yeah. put it colloquially in yeah. that way. This is the only project that will revive the ANC. Yeah. So even those who've been either agnostic and yeah. uh, have been resisting, they now realize that, hey, if we don't wake up yeah. and, uh, and embrace this renewal rebuilding, yeah. uh, we are going to be left behind or left out. So they are coming in. And so therefore, we are drumming it into everybody's head. And also the discipline part yes. to say that we can no longer just be an indisciplined organization. There must therefore be an added element of discipline, good governance, and I think these are processes that in an organization like ours do take time to gain traction. Yeah. And I think yeah. it is now going to start moving forward. And the other part yeah. is that we, we are establishing a, a, a renewal commission. That is just... Oh, not another commission? Oh, no, no, it is, but it's going to be the one that's focusing us on 2032. Yeah. That what should we look like in 2032? And come forward with the proposals at the 55th conference now. So they are going to start work. But in the, in the same time, in the meantime, rather, we are already moving forward with our renewal process. Your tone on discipline changed today. You, you're really saying you must just count yourself out if you do ill-discipline things, etc. Why the change of tone? Do you feel that you have to negotiate discipline in the ANC to yeah. a point where now you must put your foot down like this to say you are, you are out the door if you do this, this and the other? No, no, no. It is not negotiating discipline. Mm. It is just insisting on discipline. 
I must say that in some pockets of our movement, we've been a bit lexidaisical mm. with issues such as discipline. We have not really come to grips with it. And that is why I even said, even at national level, sometimes we've like tolerated certain things, yeah. uh, bad behavior. And what I was saying today is that no more tolerance within discipline. If you do something wrong yeah. and you know it, you must know you have defined yourself. But people will wonder why, why do you come up, did you come across as tolerating it all this time? You got a year to go. You, 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 you rose on the basis of a transparency, right? A, a ticket, hmm. right? And, and people sometimes don't believe you because you, you, you say these things and then you do another. And, and if that's not the case, then how do you explain that you didn't fire Zulim Kis, you didn't fire your spokesperson? When the evidence was glaring, the reports were there for months on your desk. That's you know, why I was saying, sometimes mm. we have moved slowly, mm. sometimes we have not moved with the determination, but we have moved. We have, however, moved. And yeah. what I was saying is that we now, like any organization, yeah. we now need to inject greater urgency, greater determination. And that is how organizations grow, yeah. develop and work. Do you feel, and do, so, do you feel there so, was a resistance to your project of transparency? Well, that's the point I was making, that yeah. the renewal pro process and project, if I may call it that, yeah. has had a number of iterations, sometimes high moments, sometimes low moments. Yeah. And admittedly, there has been resistance. Yeah. We are that type of broad church of an yeah. organization where in some pockets there's been. But now what I'm saying is that it's now broadly, ac everyone accepts yeah. that in order for the African National Congress yeah. to retain its standing, mm. it's got to fully embrace yeah. But do you feel one. that you are leading by example as the head of the organization as far as transparency is concerned? Because people are saying, here's a guy who rose on the basis of transparency, but we don't even know who funds him. He says he doesn't know, he was not involved, yes. and then he goes to court to say, oh, don't tell us who's funding. Yeah, uh, can, can you explain that in, in, in simpler terms, in the context of your January 8th statement that says we're not going to tolerate corruption, we're not going to tolerate mm. a, a lack of transparency? Yeah, but that is not even really the issue, because mm. the issue of, of, of that process has been explained ad nauseum, and I have also <laughs> tried to explain yeah. it ad nauseum. Yeah. But what we are saying is that yeah. we now uh, must be judged on what we are going to do going, going forward. forward. Not, because not, not, not in reflection. No, we, we can reflect yeah. so that we do not repeat the, what mistake. the mistakes of yeah. the past. And because we are an organization, that's how we must yeah. be looked at, analyzed, and judged. Yeah, we find it a bit difficult because we, we have to take you at your way. The last time we spoke, you, you looked at me with a straight face and said, you don't know who's funding you. You are not involved, right? Uh, do you know now? I mean, it's been four years since you spoke. I still don't because... Really, yes. Mr. President? No, no, that's, that's so true because when we, they structured the whole process, mm. and I want to repeat it again, yeah. when they structured it, they said, President, we are not going to get you involved yeah. in the process of the trust and the funding, yeah. and we are going to keep you completely outside of yeah. it. And so that is precisely the case. Yeah, you don't, but the, uh, you, I, I, I suspect, 
You are not too curious. You are not curious who's funding you. There's a guy who gave you 55 million for your campaign. I've been, I've been suspecting and curious, but they have said <laughs> we want yeah. to leave it in the way that we structured it. And so, therefore, you are outside of the trust, yeah. and that is precisely how we have structured it. Just talk about uh, how that would uh, either encourage or not in terms of state capture. Now, your, your, your TG says part of why you haven't paid people and there's been all these problems of paying staff, etc., is because people who used to give you money are now uh, limited to giving you 100,000, uh, and if they give you more, they must declare. Mm -hmm. Do you share that sentiment, and do you, do you think, therefore, that either one, that amount must be increased, secondly, people must just be transparent and tell us that they are funding you and be okay with it? Well, you see, I think we, we need to look at it from both sides, because a number of people who are in business mm. sometimes would say, and they do say so, that we would like to fund, but we don't want to be advertising, mm. uh, to be up there in the front page of the newspaper yeah. that we are. But yet there are others who say, in terms of our own governance, yes. we will be able to put it even in our annual report, mm. that we have funded a number of organizations. When I was still in business, I was a board member of two or three organizations yes. like that that did say we are going to fund the ANC, we're going to find, fund the opposition and so yes. forth, and this is how much we're going to give. We'll put it before our uh, directors as well as our general yes. shareholders and in the annual report. So that is not a problem. Yeah. And yet there are others who would say we prefer not to do so. Yeah. And so, therefore, in the end, you, you, you are dealing with... And they're the ones who will be protected by your, your keeping, the, for example, the CR17 bank account sealed, because those people may not want to be known that they're but funded. But there are pe business people like that yeah. who would say, I don't want, in running my business, yeah. even if I don't do business with the state, I don't want to be in the front page of the newspaper. Yeah. So then the, they are the ones who will say, I'm not going to fund. But how do you resolve it? I mean, uh, how, Resolving does, this, it, how yeah, does this thing make you feel that your staff are not paid? No, no, no. The staff issue is, yeah. a, is, is, is something that disturbs us, that yeah. concerns but us. What did you do and, about it and as president? Well, we've been doing a lot of things. We've been going to a number of businesses. Yeah. And uh, I mean, some of us have been giving personal money to yeah. assist. And uh, so th there's a lot of things that we do. But in yeah. the end, I must say that funding sources have dried up because yeah. of uh, the need by us yeah. as an organization and, of course, as various parties yeah. to say, let's, let's, let, 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 let it be declared who's funding who. Yeah. Your top so six don't, don't come across as very poor people. Have you tried to mobilize both your own funds and the top six well, to, to try and make sure that nobody is having three months backlog of a salary. No, no, but you see, it's not even that. It should ne never yeah. revolve around that. Yeah. Because many leaders are making all efforts, including those who are not in the top six, yeah. to either pay in their levies, yes. which all of us pay quite yeah. a bit of money. And in addition, a number of us are also adding money that we also donate. So you've done your best. Yes, and we do your best because in the end, the salary bill of the ANC on a monthly basis is, yeah. is quite hef uh, hefty. So in the end, we therefore need to rely on donations, yes. which have run dry, or we rely on uh, the, the equitable share that we get uh, from the state, 
as a, right. a party that is uh, uh, given money. We don't have the enough time to explore that, but when you do visit us at ENCA, we will go deeper into how that can be avoided in the future to keep the movement afloat. Precisely. But uh, let's take the last thing before we say goodbye. Hmm. The land issue. A lot of people did not believe you hmm. when you said you're going to go for uh, expropriation of land without compensation. Yes. And the reason they didn't believe you is because when you spoke to other audiences, like the, your, your, your farmers, you, 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 you got a message that said, oh, don't worry, this thing is not going to happen type of thing. Mm. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, mm. right? What is going to be done now? Because between you and the EFF, you have failed in the, last, in the recent time mm. to get Parliament to amend the Constitution mm. to make sure that land can be given back to the people. Mm. Are you still standing on the issue of expropriation without, ex uh, 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 expropriation without compensation, or are you abandoning that now? in favor of what you call land reform initiatives? Well, it's land reform initiative is, the land reform initiative is an agglomeration of the various efforts mm. and initiatives, including expropriation of land without compensation, mm. including the, uh, using the Expropriation yeah. Act, and uh, land redistribution and all that. So all that falls yeah. under land reform. And that is why I say we are going to embark on a number of initiatives yeah to make sure that land is returned to our people. Yeah. And indeed... But the compensation thing no, 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 is no, off no, the table. On. Not hold on. Yeah. Even expropriation of land without compensation yeah. is something that has never really been tested in our constitution. Mm. Former uh, uh, Deputy Chief Justice Tikhang Musekneke once said, we've, we've, we, we waited for years and years and this issue was never brought to us. Mm. And if you read our constitution, it is a constitution that actually could have it possible, it could be allowed. Yeah. So we are saying, as part of the land yeah. reform process, there are a number of initiatives that will be embarked upon, yeah. and some of those could actually be, yes, expropriation of land without yeah. compensation, and a number of categories of land. For instance, we've got land, for instance, either that belongs to the state, yeah. that can be expropriated, but we've also got land that we, which has absentee landholders. You are a negotiator of a, one of the biggest so-called miracles of our transition. Mm. You, you negotiate with people who you know, killed us and murdered us over the years, etc. But you couldn't negotiate with the EFF? Who are yes. children of the revolution? I mean, have you picked up a phone to Julius Malema? Have you sat with him one-on-one -on -one and said, let's resolve this for the sake of our people? Well, we, we, we had a group of people, including Matthew yeah. Posa and a whole lot of others, yeah. General Maduna and all of them, have been working on this and discussing with a whole number of people, not only yeah. with the EFF, but with a number of political yeah. parties. And in the end, it came down to just differences of approach, yeah. because they have a particular approach and yeah. we no, have no, a No, no, that's, that's clear and established, but yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a Rulf Mayer approach because you didn't sit in a formal thing with Ruth Mayer. You were able to create what was called a channel. Mm -hmm. Have we not created that with Julius Malema? Well, we have a number of channels with a number of political parties. No, Mr. President, no. No, no, that's you're not true. answering me now. No, no, I'm answering you. We have a number of channels. Yeah. On the metros, did you see this, Malema? We you lost metros here purely out of poor negotiations. Well, I wouldn't say it was poor negotiations. It was actually different approaches as well. And I think as political organizations, we must accept that sometimes yeah. you, you have serious differences. You have a good relationship with Malema? Yes, I do. We 
talk now and again. Can't you use it to resolve just these two issues? There are quite poor coalitions to the land issue. Well, there are quite a number of issues that, yes, we are able to resolve. And just to bring it down to the two, yeah. actually, is, is not really fully describing the relationship that are we you, have. Are you available for second term as president of the ANC? I hear talk about that if from you <laughs> and a number of other people. No, it was in public. Yes. Your chairman of, of Limpopo said we endorse you, want you to, to, to do this. Your TG has said he will support uh, this if you, if you uh, stand. Are you available? Out of that, the people that, that, their is, time? that is what I'm saying. I hear it. Yeah. I hear it and uh, it's being talked about. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm watching this process and say, ooh, this is an you interesting process. You've got a year process. to go. Do you, see, do you feel that you have achieved what you set yourself to achieve when you took over this position? Or do you think you need more time? Well, we are in the process of recasting, renewing the African National Congress. And I think a great deal has been done and achieved in that period. And yes. some things take long to achieve, yeah. and we must accept that. It's a process, because an organization is a process. It's not a linear yeah. type of uh, uh, box or yeah. whatever. It goes through its own yeah. ups and downs. People think that 300 people died, and the only thing they can remember as a post action from yourself was the promotion by the person who was a defense minister at that time, who is now the third most powerful person, and uh, obviously you had something to do with it. Your comment about that, I mean, uh, do you think they are being unreasonable? Do you think you shouldn't have promoted Mapisa Nakula to be Speaker of Parliament after he was, she failed as defense minister, failed you, even contradicted you about what was happening in Durban? Well, firstly, we, we, we deploy people. Mm. Uh, to various positions, mm. and uh, she, like anyone else, is deployed to yeah. do this and so forth, and we deploy people for a whole host of reasons, yeah. and we never say deploy people because of revenge or because of, yeah. uh, you know, rewarding so them. Or why not? Like well, well, isn't that consequence management you always talk about? Well, she fails on one thing, you promote her. I mean, is no, that no, the no, way no, of no, renewal? I think that is not the way to cast it. Okay. It is a process where we de decide that we are going to deploy people to do particular roles, to yeah. uh, uh, sort of execute particular roles. Yeah. And uh, we, we do it for a whole number of reasons. And... Uh, Mapisa Ngakula is doing a good job now as a speaker. And you well, know, Parliament has been down under yes. her watch. And <laughs> as she arrived, yeah. she's landed with a crisis. Yeah. And it was not a crisis of her doing. It's a crisis that has landed on her hands, and she is managing that process. And let's okay. wish her well in managing the process of dealing with the burning of Parliament. Final question, state capture report. Yes. Interesting that you decided to release the report. Was it to make sure that nobody sort of pressures you to, to act quickly on it? Or what was the rationale behind releasing it out there before you have decided what you're going to do about what's in there? Some of your ministers are implicated in there. They're still keeping their jobs. The evidence is out there already. You know, uh, your comment to Avri about the state capture and what we can expect and how we can expect you to deal with it in a decisive manner as the ANC? Part of the, re the, the reasons why we released it immediately was that it's going to be released in three parts. Mm. And uh, having received the first part, we anticipate, we expect the th second one and the third one. So we want to comment more holistically okay. rather than 
in uh, piecemeal in, in, in a piecemeal basis yeah. now ha having received the first one we couldn't ha never have kept it uh, and leave South Africans to speculate because it's not my report mm. it's a report that belongs to the people of South Africa so mm. I felt that let me release it uh, however if it implicates you would you resign uh, if it implicates me then I have to deal with that in terms yeah. of what it implicates me on and whatever and let's deal with that yeah. when that report comes and I know that it's inconvenient in an election year isn't it what the report the report yeah no. it's going to implicate so many of your your top NEC no, no, members and cabinet ministers no we've got to deal with matters as they happen yeah. whether it is convenient or not convenient yeah we've, we've got to deal with them in yeah. the end we are dealing with matters that impact on the nation not on you know, human feelings, my yeah. own individual feelings, whether I'll resign or not. It, these are yeah. matters. Have you ever felt you should resign in the last four years at any point to say, oh, I don't need this in my life? Well, being president of the republic, particularly at this time, it's quite, has been quite a challenging task. Okay. And uh, you yeah. wake up and say, you know, what is this? Uh, what did that do to myself? Yeah. But then again, you also remember that I was deployed to be here. Yes. People expect me to execute this task, and I will execute it to the best of my ability. Right. And uh, if 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 I fail, I must die failing. I must execute it. Welcome back, and uh, that was an interview uh, with uh, uh, South African uh, Television Network uh, (ECNA). Uh, with uh, President Cyril uh, Ramaphosa, and uh, not a good interview at all uh, in regard to uh, questions that were asked by the uh, television reporter. Uh, there was nothing on the economy, nothing on the state of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, nothing uh, on uh, the energy crisis um, hitting South Africa. He asked no questions about the broader regional context under which uh, South Africa is operating. Uh, the Southern African Development Community, the African Union, and uh, the unrest and, uh, and war and the deployment of South African troops in Mozambique. And uh, this is uh, the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast that uh, we're here uh, broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And we'll have another interview uh, in our next program with... Um, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, uh, which will be uh, from uh, the state-sponsored uh, South African Broadcasting Corporation. And of course, we'll see uh, exactly um, how they uh, distinguish themselves uh, from uh, the ECNA uh, network uh, operating in uh, the Republic of South Africa. And... Um, this program uh, can be shared with other potential listeners. All you have to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And the programs can be shared with other potential listeners uh, through emails, blogs, and websites, as well as social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we're going to take a break, uh, and we'll be back with more of our program for this week. 
segment. Uh, this is Africa Live from CGTN uh, for January 8th, 2022. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. 
Hello and welcome to the world today. I'm Richard Nsai, Nairobi. Here's what's ahead. Kazakhstan detains its former prime minister on suspicion of high treason following days of violent protests. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is in the Maldives as the two nations mark 50 years of diplomatic ties. And Ugandans in the grip of a third wave of COVID-19 as cases hit a daily average of 1,300. Once again, welcome to the world today. Great to have you with us. Let's begin in Kazakhstan, where the country's former prime minister and security chief, Karim Mazimov, has been detained on suspicion of high treason. The country has been experiencing its worst street unrest since gaining independence from the Soviet Union three decades ago. President Kazimov Jamart Tokayev says there will be no talks with terrorists and unrest must stop. He has declared January 10th as a national day of mourning to remember those killed in the unrest. Demonstrations began last week in response to rising fuel prices and dozens of protesters and some security forces have been killed. No protest leaders have emerged. CSTO members are sending troops to quell clashes at Kazakhstan's request. And the U.S. has authorized non-emergency employees working for the consulate general in the country to leave. And various countries and international organizations have called for calm. Kazakhstan's president has ordered security forces to open fire without warning as anti-government protests continue. In a televised address, Kazim Jomart Tokayev warned demonstrators against further action as Russian and allied troops try to put down days of protest. Nawi Jarbakale reports. Burnt out cars, buildings destroyed and civilians being killed by police. Until a few weeks ago, Kazakhstan was one of the most stable countries in Central Asia. But what started as small protests against gas prices have morphed into nationwide anti-government demonstrations that have left dozens dead and thousands injured. On Friday, the president risked escalating the violence, allowing soldiers to fire without warning in a bid to stop the unrest. The counter-terrorist operation continues. The militants have not laid down their arms. They continue to commit crimes or are preparing for them. The fight against them must be pursued to the end. Whoever does not surrender will be destroyed. Officials say more than 3,000 people have been arrested, mostly in Almaty, the country's largest city and the epicenter of the protests. This police handout footage shows some of those being detained while one body lies motionless nearby. Those who can are trying to leave the country. This border post with neighboring Kyrgyzstan, one route to safety. I'm coming from Almaty. I, I was supposed to fly to Dubai tomorrow. But uh, I found that the Almaty airport is closed. I tried to go to other airports in Kazakhstan, but all airports in Kazakhstan are closed. The Kazakh government has resigned because of the protests, but the president remains defiant. He says the rioters are foreign-backed terrorists. He's provided no evidence for the claim, but has called in his own international reinforcements, including troops from Russia, now on the ground in the former Soviet state. The European Union, UK and US have all raised concerns about Moscow's involvement and the UN is calling for calm. I think for us the important thing is that um, security forces, whether they are Kazakh or whether they are non-Kazakh troops, need to uphold the same 
of human rights standards, which is to show restraint and protect people's rights to demonstrate peacefully. Gunshots were heard in Almaty again on Friday, with the possibility of more casualties on both sides. Rising gas prices have fueled a fire here in Kazakhstan, with deep-rooted frustration surfacing after three decades of rule by former leader Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Despite its vast reserves of oil, gas and other natural resources, some Kazakhs have a burning desire for change. Nawid Jabakil, CGTN. Chinese President Xi Jinping has sent a message to Kazakhstan's president. She offered support and says China opposes any external forces that create social unrest and harms Kazakhstan's stability. China has noted that the Kazakh authorities are taking a series of vigorous measures to combat acts of violence and maintain social stability. China supports all efforts in favor of the Kazakh authorities to calm the situation as soon as possible and resolutely opposes external forces creating social unrest and inciting violence in Kazakhstan. As a brotherly neighbor and a permanent comprehensive strategic partner, China is ready to do its best to provide the necessary support to Kazakhstan and help it overcome difficulties. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, of which Kazakhstan is a member, issued a statement on Friday saying it hopes the situation will stabilize soon. The organization says it believes timely measures have been taken by Kazakhstan's leaders to resume peaceful talks with the framework of the legal system. And meanwhile, China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi is visiting the Maldives as both countries mark 50 years of diplomatic ties. Radhika Bajaj reports from the country's capital, Mali. Foreign Minister Wang Yi's visit marks uh, 50 years of bilateral ties between China and the Maldives. Uh, he was received with uh, much warmth on uh, Friday evening by his Maldivian counterpart, Abdullah Shahid. Now, during the course of this visit, there will be some cultural exchanges uh, to mark 50 years of bilateral ties. Uh, as there will be a courtesy call paid by Wang Yi to the Maldivian uh, President Ibrahim Soleil. We will also see extensive discussions uh, uh, between Abdullah Shahid and Wang Yi, whether it's to do with infrastructure development, uh, uh, health and even travel. Uh, now for the Maldives, of course, China is a very important uh, development partner with China in the past decade having invested heavily into key infrastructure and socio-economic projects, uh, whether it is housing complexes or a key bridge that links Mali uh, to its uh, neighboring islands, including uh, the airport. Chinese tourists are also considered key uh, for uh, the tourism-dependent economy of the Maldives. Uh, and uh, then, of course, for China, Maldives is a very key strategic partner uh, in the Indian Ocean region. Uh, we are expecting that during this visit there will be some key documents that will be signed between the two sides, and these will have to do with health, travel, as well as infrastructure. Myanmar's military leader has pledged support for Myanmar to follow a five-point peace plan, and uh, Min Aung Hlaing made the statement after his meeting with the Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen. He said Myanmar had extended its ceasefire with all ethnic armed organizations across the country. Cambodia currently holds the chair of ASEAN, and Hun Sen is the first head of state to visit Myanmar since the military takeover last February. Protests and rallies were held in some parts of Myanmar as people expressed anger over Hun Sen's visit. 
Well, let's turn our attention to COVID in India, and the country has reported nearly 142,000 new cases, the most since the end of May. Saturday is the second consecutive day with more than 100,000 new infections recorded. The outbreak is being fueled by the Omicron variant, which is overtaking Delta in many cities. The country's health ministry also reported 285 new deaths. India's total infections have surpassed 35 million. Well, Japan has declared quasi-emergency measures in three prefectures to curb a COVID-19 surge. Some officials have linked the rise in cases to U.S. military bases in the region. Foibi Amoroso reports from Tokyo. This will allow uh, the local governments to request their businesses, for example, to shorten their hours and also establishments to stop serving alcohol. Uh, but these have been criticized for really uh, lacking teeth. There is some kind of fine for non-compliance, but in practice that was really not rolled out before. So that is what is the same. But this time round, really, uh, the, Japan is dealing with an unprecedented speed when it comes to the spread. For example, cases in Okinawa have surpassed 1,400, and that's the highest ever on record. And here in Tokyo, cases have increased 12-fold compared to last week. And this is really due to the Omicron variant. A study looking at cases on the year end to uh, early New Year uh, found that around 46% of cases were Omicron and it's expected to become the dominant variant shortly. Now Japan is more prepared this time round. Um, after a very difficult time in the summer during the fifth wave, uh, it has increased hospital capacity by about 30% and uh, the government has distribute, uh, distributed Merck oral um, antiviral pills nationwide looking to also distribute uh, medications from Pfizer and uh, they are preparing several quarantine facilities Facilities. But where there is some concern is that booster shots have really yet to start being rolled out, only to um, healthcare workers. And uh, they have shortened the period between double vaccination and this uh, third jab from eight to seven months. But that really has uh, yet to be rolled out to the elderly. And so there are concerns that this is a little too late to start moving. Well, Ugandan authorities say the country is in the grip of a third wave of COVID-19 cases. As cases hit a daily average of 1,300, the Ministry of Health says this surge is down to people flouting restrictions during the festive season. Isabel Nakuria reports. Uganda's Minister of Health is warning there's been a spike of COVID-19 cases since Christmas week. Weekly positivity rates have surged from 11% in the third week of December to 23% now. The country is fully reopening its economy this month, but authorities warn another lockdown might be necessary if people do not take containment measures seriously. The more we continue to downplay and act outside the guidelines issued by the Ministry of Health, the more we will continue to be inflicted by COVID-19 and to suffer all the disruptions from returning to our normal life. Community transmission started going up after the country detected cases of the Omicron variant in early December. With new admissions rising every day, authorities in Uganda are worried about running out of hospital beds if infections don't slow down. The rising transmission rate comes just as schools prepare to reopen, causing fears about the safety of children in schools. The WHO says a safe reopening of the economy can only be achieved 
if more people get vaccinated against COVID-19. Uganda is doing relatively good, but we haven't reached our target, the global target of ensuring uh, at least 40% of the eligible population to be vaccinated by the end of last year. So far, just 10 million people out of the targeted 22 million have received a first vaccine dose in Uganda and a booster dose has been recommended for the elderly. Isabel Nakiria, CGTN Kampala, Uganda. Well, that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. This is it. I'm just about to be shot. Friends here, bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about three critical <laughs> bridges <laughs> here in Malawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Yeah, gas just came in. Gas. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. This is the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from We've the front line. We've view of this front line position. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, CGTN, uh, The World Today and Africa Live. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, January 8th, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this, edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared uh, with other potential listeners uh, via email, blogs and websites, and social media networks. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.com blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com we're going to close out uh, with the legendary uh, jazz guitarist Wes Montgomery uh, 
when he performed live at the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, on March 25th of 1965. This is Abayomi Azikaway signing off, and have a beautiful week. Jazz musicians have only to make a couple of records or sit in on a few jam sessions to be hailed as new discoveries. Well, with our star guest on Jazz 625 tonight, exactly the opposite happened. For many years, he was virtually unknown to the wide jazz public. And then, five years ago, came not only recognition, but also acceptance as one of the masters of his instrument, the jazz guitar. The name is Wes Montgomery. Yeah. With him, making up the members of his quartet are on piano, someone who uh, was quite recently in Miles Davis's band, and before that with Lionel Hampton, Harold Mayburn. <laughs> on bass, the young man who's made several albums with J.J. Johnson quite recently, Arthur Harper. And on drums, a new name in, to, to British jazz fans, someone who comes from the West Coast of America and who will be known to jazz fans in the future, I'm quite sure, Jimmy Lovelace. <laughs> well, that's the West Montgomery Quartet, and now their first number, Jerome Kern's Yesterdays. <laughs>
That was a West Montgomery original called Jingle. Wes is a, is a self-taught musician, but if you think that a self-taught musician is in any way a faulty or incomplete musician, take the opportunity of looking in close-up at the fantastic thumb technique which he's evolved. This is, uh, so far as I know, a, a unique technique, and it's one which makes even classically trained guitarists boggle, and they don't boggle too easily. Uh, over to the quartet now for, uh, for a, a classic of modern jazz, Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight. 